Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Today's call to worship can be found in Revelations 7, 9, and 10. That's on page 1142 of the Q Bible. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen. Today's Old Testament reading can be found in your Pew Bible on page 867, and we'll be reading Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Our gospel reading is found in John verse 12. Or chapter 12, verses 12 to 15, says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Things were not going all that well in Judah. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, had been gone for more than 600 years. And in the southern kingdom the Romans were a strong and oppressive force. The people longed for the good old days. They wanted the days of Solomon and David. They wanted the joy of Israel as the strong people of Yahweh. They looked so forward to the promise of the Messiah whom they envisioned as being the one who would restore the former glory of Israel. They thought about the Messiah driving those mean and nasty Romans back to Italy where they belonged. Even some of Jesus' disciples were known for being zealots, people who were strongly politically motivated. And so, as the people were expecting the Messiah sometime around this particular time, because of the prophecies of Daniel the prophet, they were looking for someone who could do what their hearts longed to have take place, to be the mighty deliverer. And although the religious leaders weren't identifying Jesus as the Messiah, the people were amazed. First of all, he was a loving and compassionate person. Wherever he would go, he would have talks with the people. We tend to call them sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount, 
But all that's supposed to be is a conversation from one heart to the hearts of others. Kind of what President Roosevelt did back some years ago with the fireside chats. Just relating to the people. And Jesus was like that. And he talked about God as though he knew God personally. And that God actually loved them. I can imagine that Jesus probably from time to time quoted the verse that is my favorite verse in all the Bible, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You catch the significance of that. It's everlasting. It's not, I will love you when. It's not, I will love you if. It's not, I will love you until. It's everlasting. And as Jesus is talking to the people, he's talking about this wonderful God. And they wonder, do we dare believe him? This isn't what the teachers in the synagogues are telling us. They're telling us that God is strict and harsh. They're talking about stories from the Old Testament where God opened the earth and swallowed up the rebellious. They didn't talk about how God delivered the people miraculously. They were thinking of God as the vengeful, vengeful God. And their eyes were so closed to any reality other than overthrowing the Romans and restoring the glory of Israel that even when Jesus was among them they couldn't see how Jesus fit their scenario. How could he possibly be the Messiah when he is not interested in military conquests? He's not interested in political movements. He doesn't get involved in the political discourse. He keeps talking about God and relationship with God. Can't possibly be, but the people loved it. The people who heard Jesus, they said, boy, our hearts just burned within us. We love what this man is saying about God. And children, who are usually a very good detector of personality, the children just crowded around Jesus as though he were the best friend a kid could have. And they'd all want to come up and sit on his lap. Jesus would always take time to, to speak to them. He would just, like this, how are you doing, darling? It's good to see you. I'm glad you're here today. How are you, young man? It's great to see you. You know, when Jesus would pay attention to the children, the adults were jealous. How come you spend all the time with the kids? You know, what about me? You know who I am? I am rich, increased with goods, and need nothing but a little attention. The children love to be near Jesus. And on a couple of occasions, 
Jesus also did some other very amazing things. Big crowd out in the hillside, long way from town. A crowd that could easily have been fifteen to 20,000 people because they only counted the men. They didn't count the women. They didn't count the children. So we talk about the feeding of 5,000. Yeah, sure. That's because the men were selfish and got there first, and they were the only ones that were counted. But Jesus fed a small town. And do you remember what he used? One kid brought a sack lunch. Five bagels and a couple of fish. Ah, They may not have been bagels. Some mother was probably like my mom. You better pack a lunch. You might get hungry. Probably some of the others whose mothers told them that left the lunch because they didn't want to be seen carrying the bag. You know, how uncool is that? But from one sack lunch, Jesus fed that vast multitude. And they had more leftovers than they started with. How did he do that? And then, Jesus would come into a town and he would encounter someone who was sick or lame or blind or mute. And he would just say, the Lord loves you. Be healed. And they were healed. Healed completely. Shriveled or paralyzed limbs were made strong again. One time Jesus gave sight to a man who had been born blind and had lived for decades without having any idea what sight was. He had shriveled Orbs didn't even have eyes that were physically whole and able to see, if only the nerves were connected properly. He had atrophied orbs in his face. Jesus thought it would be better for him to see. And then... On at least three different occasions that we know of, Jesus raised the dead. Two of them on the day that they occurred, Jairus' daughter and the widow of Nain's son. You know, the Jews and many Muslims and Jews today bury their dead the day that they die, if at all possible. But then, just maybe a week before the event we are about to describe, about a week before, Jesus came back from traveling up in the north. He'd been up in Galilee. And word reached him that his friend Lazarus was sick. Now, I've got to take a moment here because I need you to understand the day the servant arrived to tell Jesus Lazarus died. The servant had taken two days to get to Jesus. It's a long walk. 
it's a long walk. It would take about as long to walk that as it would take to walk to Loma Linda. It's a long walk. You wouldn't really want to do it unless you were in pretty good shape. It took two days, two long days, to get from Bethany to where Jesus was. And when Jesus, when Jesus heard the news from these messengers... What does the Bible say? He waited how long? Two days. Why? Because he knew that it would take two days to get back. And he wanted to be there four days after Lazarus died. Do you know why? The Jews thought they were superstitious. Don't think of them as knowing everything you know. They were superstitious. They thought that if a person could be revived, within three days, life could come back into the body. That the life force was there for three days. And if somehow a servant of the Lord were there to reconnect the life force with the body, the person could be resurrected. But Jesus wanted to get there four days after death so that everyone was totally pessimistic. There's nothing that can be done now. You'd gotten here yesterday, maybe you could have revived him, but no, 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 you were late. And we heard you hung around up north two days after you got the word. No wonder everybody was saying, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And so Jesus gets there, and everyone knows Lazarus is dead hopelessly dead. And Jesus says, in English at least, three words. Lazarus, come out. Come out of that burial cave. And Lazarus was alive. And not just alive and sick, he was alive and well. Now think about this. Folks have been saying, this Jesus is wonderful. He's a loving man. This Jesus is amazing. He can feed a small town from a sack lunch. This Jesus is awesome. He can heal wounded, sick, broken people. And get this, folks, he can raise the dead. Now, think about this from their mindset. Looking for a military deliverer from the hands of the Romans. Think what this man could do as king. We don't have to have wagon loads of supplies. We can just take a sack lunch and feed the entire army and have more left over than we started with. We don't have to move all of that food. Somebody gets hurt in battle? No problem. You, you got a spear through your liver? No problem. Jesus will heal you. And guess what? If he doesn't get to you in time, he can just walk along the battlefield and you're raised, you're raised, you're raised. Folks, the people were not understanding what Jesus was here to do. They didn't understand that yet. That comes after 
He was resurrected from the dead when their eyes were opened. And Jesus was on earth for those 40 days afterwards, making sure that the disciples understood what they had been seeing for three and a half years. They had been missing all of this. And finally, they understood. But at this point, no. He's the one. He's the one. We will never lose another battle. And we'll have those Romans licking their wounds all the way back to Italy. Now Jesus, on the other hand, knew that he actually was king. And Jesus knew that he was not the king of the Jews. He's the king of the earth. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the true deliverer, not from Rome, but from the power of sin, from the grasps of Lucifer. And he is not just able to heal our bodies and restore physical life to our bodies. He is able to break the power of sickness forever and more than that, to give us life eternal. And he needed the people to be able to understand what he was really here to accomplish. And they weren't going to get it. They were going to proclaim him king. Okay. He had averted that one other time when he took off walking across the lake, the Sea of Galilee. But this time he knew they were going to proclaim him again. They knew that he would be declared king, but he also knew the people had the wrong idea. But looking backward on the event, they would say, how could we have missed it? And so like you saw in the children's story, he said, go to such and such a place and get a donkey. What do we need a donkey for? Because Zechariah had said, your king will enter the capital city. He'll come to you, Zion, a term for Jerusalem, or the place where God interacts with his people is a more correct understanding of Zion, where God and his people come together. What was in Jerusalem? The temple. And so where the temple was is where God connected with his people. So Jesus had to come into Zion. And he came in as king, riding on the colt, just as planned. What about those palm branches? It's true, in the little thing that the children did, it spoke of the palm branches as being symbols of victory. That's true. And the Israelites, since they had entered the promised land in the days of Joshua, had understood the victory that God had given them, the promised land. And so they had the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall of the year, and they would collect palm branches. 
and they would make temporary shelters where they would worship God for eight days. And they were thinking that this was until the Lord gave them the restored Israel again. And they were thinking that when they were waving these palm branches, that they were saying, this is it. God is taking us from the temporary time of wandering in the wilderness and being persecuted by the Romans, and he's going to give us victory over them. And we're going to be in our home, Israel, again, and we'll be greater than King David and greater than Solomon. And they were waving those palm branches. Jesus was fully aware of the symbolism of what he was doing. He was fully aware when earthly kings would come back to their nation's capital. They would parade before them the kings and the nobility and the rich and the powerful that they had vanquished. So preceding these triumphal kings coming back to their capital city would be those with heads bowed and in humility and embarrassment and defeat. They would be trudging along ahead of the triumphant king. But not so with Jesus. As Jesus is entering into the capital city, before him are children dancing and praising God and saying, Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? Actually, the Hebrew word Hoshana, it means, it's like an exclamation, save or salvation. That's why we showed the passage from Revelation where the multitude at the end is saying, salvation belongs to our God. They're shouting Hosanna. Hosanna. They're proclaiming that this is the one who will save. Coming into Jerusalem, the folks were thinking, save us from Rome. Looking back, we see the big picture. And we know that the salvation is eternal salvation. And not just from some temporal power. By the way, God is not so much interested in what happens in various parts of the world that everybody thinks are so important. God cares about all of his people. And the triumph is not over this earthly kingdom or that one. It is triumph over sin. So before Jesus, as he's entering Jerusalem, are the children praising God. And then, remember that guy that was crippled beside the pool for 38 years? He's showing how well his legs work. And he's probably... Some folks today would be a little upset that he seemed to be dancing. A little too energetic here, folks. But he was saying, look how well these legs work that Jesus gave me. The man from the synagogue with the withered hand, he's probably going, Hosanna! (laughs) Showing what that withered hand would do. And that guy who'd been born blind, he's spying out every eye in the crowd saying, look at this, I can see. Jesus did this. No crowd of dejected people walking before Jesus. Celebration, great joy at what Jesus has done. 
And out in front, who do you suppose was there? Do you know who was there? Leading the donkey on which Jesus rode? The dead man, Lazarus. Only he wasn't dead anymore. He was alive. And the folks who said, you've got to be kidding, that didn't really happen. They say, well, who's that leading the donkey that Jesus is on? Well, it looks like Lazarus must be his ghost. Ghosts aren't real, folks. Ghosts aren't real. That was really Lazarus raised from the dead. Jesus is coming into the capital city preceded not by those he had defeated and humiliated, but preceded by those he had loved and healed and restored and raised to life. You know, I chose that passage in Revelation for another reason. The great multitude, or the 144,000, because I believe they're the same group, One is symbolic, one's literal. That great multitude is waiting for the Lord to enter the capital. Not a city, an entire planet. Jesus coming to this world where he will rule forever and ever. Rule the entire universe from planet Earth. This place that everybody said, can no good thing come out of the earth? Jesus is coming to his capital. And the victorious, those who trusted in him, have palm branches. It's victory. The end of our temporary dwelling. Home everlasting. And what are they saying? Salvation. Salvation has come in Jesus Christ. So, here's what I want you to do. I'm almost done. I've got five minutes left. I'm not over time. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine. You can either have yourself along the road coming into Jerusalem, or you can imagine yourself in white robes with palm branches as Jesus comes in the clouds. As he parts the heavens... Or, as the scripture says, rend the heavens and come down. As he actually does that, I want you to imagine you're one of the ones celebrating that victory. Okay? Now, I heard an amen. That's good. But what the, the definitive word is Hosanna, right? Because it means you've saved me or I praise you for saving me. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. So I want you today to give me your very best Hosanna. Now, there's a reason for this. You know, if we are going to truly have excitement when the Lord comes, maybe we ought to get a little bit excited about what he's done for us now. So put aside all of your inhibitions. I know you're, you've been taught, many of you, you're quiet in church. And normally that's a good thing. But right now, I want you to pretend that Jesus is coming right now, and you see him in all of his glory, and you know that the reason you are alive to see him come is because the grace of Jesus has covered your life, and you are really excited, and I want you to say, Hosanna. Are you ready? Let's say it. 
Hosanna! There's a church that is ready to meet Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus' coming is for you. It's not just for everybody. It is for everybody, but it's for everybody one at a time, if you understand. It is for you personally and individually. And we need to tell our Lord, thank you, Jesus. Say it one more time. Hosanna! Praise God. Thank you so much. Lord, we give you praise in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for all the many wonderful things that you do for us every day and for being our Savior and Redeemer. Dismiss us now from this place, but never from your presence, for we need you continually, Lord. Thank you for being our saving God. Amen.